Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series explores the letters to the churches in Revelation and how they speak to us today. Let's jump right into today's teaching. In the summer of 1967, which was Canada's centennial year, Harriet and I visited Canada for the first time. We stayed with her family in Toronto. They very graciously kind of drove us around and took us to various places. We went camping with them and all kinds of stuff. We were checking out this new land that we might want to come back to live. One day they took us on a trip down from Toronto to Niagara Falls. I'd seen it on pictures, obviously, but for the first time I sensed the power and the enormous of the water that came. I wonder, where does it keep coming from? Just great to see. I recall the first time that Harry and I visited Jerusalem. We stayed in a mountain that was on the top of the Mount of Olives, in a hotel on the top of the Mount of Olives. And we were up early in the morning to catch the sunrise. The golden orb of the mosque that we would know from many pictures is called the Dome of the Rock. It just seemed to light up. The rising sun touched the sandstones of the city, turning them into a rich golden brown. It was simply breathtaking. But can I tell you, that those two things and perhaps many, many others that you could think of, the power of the falls, the beauty of Jerusalem. Do not compare with the beauty and the power of the passage that we will look at this morning. Last Sunday, I introduced you to the idea that there's several passages in the New Testament which we call hymns. They were probably sung or chanted about Jesus in a church service. One of those is Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. And this morning you will find yourself standing in front of a passage and a truth that has been the basis of our understanding of Christ for 2,000 years. It was there long before we were, and it will stand long after we are gone. The depths of this passage should simply overwhelm us. I think it was John Stott, the British preacher and pastor who said about passages like this, the most we're ever able to do is to stand in the shallows. But we'll stand in the shallows this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand. Invite Marilyn to come and read this passage too, as I've called it, a hymn to the risen Christ. Please follow along the words on the screen or on your sermon notes. I'm reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> I'll tell you this morning as we begin to paddle in the shallows of this passage, it has a lot of theology in it. There's a lot of things to learn theologically. I don't make apologies for that. I just tell you, you got to get your theological brain in order this morning. I wonder often, is there a toehold in this passage that will enable us to catch the glimpse, a glimpse of the wonder, the wonder and the depth of what it is to teach us. I think it comes to us in what we will call verse 19. When it says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness of Christ dwell in him. We need to know a little bit of background to this letter, as is the case with every other letter from Paul. This letter, Colossians, was written to challenge an early heresy known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism was essentially dualistic. That means it saw life as in two parts. There was a spiritual part and the physical part. There was a heavenly part and an earthly part. And these two parts were really not able to meet and talk to each other or touch each other. Gnosticism taught that what was spiritual was pure. And what was earthly was fallen. So the question then becomes, how can a God relate to something as earthly as creation? The idea of the incarnation, the word became flesh, is impossible in Gnosticism. But their answer was to to find a series of what we might call rays or steps that emanated from God. Each one becoming a little less spiritual, a little more fallen, a little less spiritual, a little more fallen each one becoming less divine and more human until eventually there was nothing of the divine left and they were able to touch this earthly substance. They also taught that the struggle and the task of humanity, which was to become like God, was really the opposite. You had to climb a spiritual ladder, each step requiring special knowledge, Gnosticism, and some higher illumination, It sounds a lot like the teaching of some cults that have come and gone. So you have to gain a little more knowledge each time, moving up step by step until you gain godliness. And that's what Paul is challenging in Colossians, and especially in verse 19, when he says that Christ is the fullness of God. He's saying to us very clearly, there is not a series of spiritual steps bringing God to us, nor is there a spiritual ladder to be climbed rung by rung, bringing us up to God. Rather, the fullness of God resides in a single step, actually in a single person, who is Jesus. And the way to reach God is through this person, Jesus. And it's in Jesus that God has placed the fullness of all that he is. And so we come this morning to what I call a hymn to the risen Christ. Let me give you four stages or movements of song. 
Paul is saying to us that only in the risen Christ can we fully know God. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image. The Greek word is the word icon of the invisible God. We'll come back to the word in a moment. And a key truth in the spiritual life is always the truth of revelation. God is at work making himself known to us. God is not playing some cosmic game of hide and seek with us at all. He makes himself known to us in creation. That's what we find in the opening chapters of Genesis. I'll be honest. I really don't see in the opening of Genesis, which is all about creation. I don't see that as being a, a geological or scientific textbook. Rather, it's essentially a theological book, a theological picture. God is the one who creates. We find that reflected in, in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. You find that in Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, and then Paul explains what they are, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So in creation, we see the, the order, the power, the majesty of God. Creation is the landscape of the Bible. It's the canvas upon which God draws a picture of himself and all that he is. Secondly, God reveals himself to us through his word. The Bible is a transcript of the thoughts and minds of God. It's how he thinks. And so he records how he has thought and acted in history and the lives of people. That's why we need to ask for the spirit of revelation as we read the Bible. And again, God reveals himself to us in the world through the life and ministry of Jesus. Remember, Colossians said Christ is the image of God. The Greek word is the word icon. It can mean a picture or a photograph. We've taken the word icon and we have gathered it into our computer language today. An icon, you know, is that tiny thumbnail picture or logo. Then when you click on it, it opens up and something larger as a file comes to life. Saying to us, when you click onto the life of Jesus, it opens up and takes you into a larger picture, which is the person of God, the father. That is why John wrote in his gospel. By the way, his gospel was also written to challenge this Gnostic heresy. He says about the life of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the father's side, he has made him known. If you remember about studying the Bible, it's the word exegete. Jesus has exegeted God for us. Jesus also says to his disciples, if you've seen me, how do you finish it? You've seen the father. The point is, the only way we can fully know who God is, is through this Jesus Christ. Because God sent him into the world to reveal who he was. So when people say things like, you know, they love nature because that's where they can feel close to God. They're really missing the point. They really only can become close to God in the life of Jesus. If we just truly desire to know God as we fully can, we cannot do that apart from knowing who Jesus is. It means again that only in the risen Christ can we fully understand God's world. Again, back to Colossians. 
for by him, all things were created things in heaven and in earth, visible and visible whether thrones or powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Gnosticism could never have said that. And it says he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. I have a sense that many people today believe in one of two things. Either they believe in a world as God, a God who has withdrawn and distanced himself from our lives, even from creation. We have been abandoned. They feel like cosmic orphans. I don't know the song, but it was one of the lines of the song we sung this morning about, it was about making us sons or daughters. Am I right? I'm sorry, give it to me again. Making orphans into sons and daughters. Thank you very much. That was the line I didn't know. Some people feel abandoned. Cosmic orphans. Or others see a godless world. Instead of cosmos, which is the Greek word for order, we live in the midst of chaos. And so we live like spiritual terrorists and in moral anarchy and environmental catastrophe. But this great hymn to Christ presents a powerful picture of Christ as Lord of creation. I think that's a dimension that evangelicals sometimes ignore. Jesus is the creative force in creation. We don't think deeply enough about this. Christ is the agent of our creation. Either we see the world, I think for a lot of people, as, as our larder, it's where we gather our food, or it's our sports arena, it's where we play. We golf or we fish or we hunt or ski. But it's saying that Jesus is the cohesive force in creation. Not only does he create, but he's the glue that holds everything together. He is the power of everything. And so we need to value and appreciate this perhaps far, far more than we usually do as Christians. Cosmos means that there's order in the universe. The law of gravity works all the time. Every time. You don't have to believe in the law of gravity if you don't want to. It really doesn't matter because it's bigger than you are. Creation is orderly, but it is also free. That means we are free to pollute the streams and the air with toxic waste, as we're finding out. But in that freedom, we have to accept the responsibility for what we've done. We're also free to reverse some of what we've done. And once again, we can enjoy clean air and clean, clean water. Jesus is about the, the culmination or the climax of what creation is about. Colossians says all things have been created for him. Jesus is a clue to what creation is all about. And, this, and the environmental movement, we're much more in, about saving the earth. <coughs> Excuse me, for the next generation. We're working for creation really because of its relationship to Jesus Christ as Lord of creation. I think perhaps as Christians, we have, I have, a lot more hard thinking to do that with that, with regard to the environment. Colossians also says in this hymn that only under the risen Christ can we fully be God's people, the church. Again from Colossians, he's the head of the body, the church. 
He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. <coughs> so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, um, Paul is fond of using this analogy of a human body to describe the church, Christ the head, for all the different limbs and parts of the body. As God was saying to his his announcements appeal this morning. Some of the parts of the <coughs> excuse me. Some of the parts of the body can go and help another part of the body, up island. It reminds us that the church is the body of Christ. It's a living organism in which each member, each person, is uniquely spiritually linked to one another through Christ. Please listen carefully to the next thought. Baptist churches often state that they're a democracy as opposed to being ruled by one person, such as a bishop. I'm in no way challenging that. But I'd like you to think and understand about what the church truly is. The church is not really a democracy. It must go far beyond meetings, debates, and votes, carefully following Robert's Rules of Order. Our problem is that we can assume that we can bring our secular practice of democracy from politics and voting as a way to do the spiritual business of the church. The church is truly a Christocracy, a place where Christ rules. And the spiritual direction of the church must come from Christ, the head. It doesn't come from one person. Rather, it comes from our listening together, our praying together, are discussing together as the people of God about what the head is saying to the whole body. So you see, a church business should be in the purest sense of the word, a worship meeting, the rule of, the rule of Christ. The church really is a Christocracy. You get that? Meeting under the rule of Christ, and his word is final. Here's a picture from the church in Antioch. In the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger. What does that tell you about Simon? Simeon, rather, not Simon, Simeon. What does it tell you about him? He was black. Lucius of Cyrene, Manim, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord, and catch the next word, in fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. In worship, they heard what the Spirit was saying. It says that they fasted. Now, we always think of this in terms of food. But do you remember in those days, a great amount of their daily work, gathering food, would be no longer required if you're going to fast. You see, they just didn't stop at save on food or thrifties on their way home from work. What if we thought of fasting on a wider scale? I think many of us say we would we would read the Bible more and pray more if we only had more time. Let me ask you a question. What if there was a really urgent need or crisis facing Central Baptist Church or an important decision? And we needed to hear from the head of the body. And we would say together, we'd fast for a week from television. We would give up Jeopardy. Uh, 
I was watching it last week, and one of the categories, if you know Jeopardy, was on Bible books. I got all of them right. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe we give up sports, our newspapers. What if we fasted from our cell phones for a day? Ooh. And we would use that redeemed time to come together, to listen together to what the Lord of the church was saying to us as a church. What if the issue before a church was selecting a new lead pastor? When the risen Christ is not the head of the church in a real functioning sense, then people do whatever they want. And then we have spiritual chaos. We have spiritual anarchy. It is the headship of Jesus in the church, which turns us from chaos to cosmos, which remember means spiritual order. It is Jesus alone who stands as the true leader of the church. He is the real moderator. He is the one who directs the word. It is through his word that we come together. Now, I fully understand that no human church structure is perfect, no matter what it is. Each different organization has its strengths and weaknesses. But what is vitally important, folks, is that when we come together as a church, especially in our business meetings, we're not here to do human business in a human way. We're here to do spiritual business in a spiritual way, which means to seek and to hear the instructions of Jesus and take our orders from our head, who's Jesus. That's fair. The church is also the primary means through which God will accomplish his mission in the world. And the direction of that mission comes from Jesus, who operates and functions as the head of the body. I think John got me a glass of water. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Okay, thank you. If you have a Bible or your um, cell phone, whatever, turn to First First Corinthians chapter twelve. You will see how the Trinity is involved in our life and ministry as a church. Verse four. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. It says so that the Spirit gives the gifts. The word is charismata. We need to actually know, in the very proper sense of the word. We're a charismatic church. People may ask you, you're a charismatic church. No, we're a Baptist church. We are a charismatic church. And that has nothing to do with how high you raise your hands or people speaking in tongues. It means that we believe that every Christian as a member is a person gifted by the Holy Spirit. Got it? Verse 5. There are different kinds of service. Same Lord, Jesus, the Lord of the church, directs where these gifts are go. There are different places and areas of service. That's the word diakonia. We're all deacons in a sense. We're all called to serve. Verse 6, there are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them. God the Father is the one who energizes, makes them be effective. And now to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's how it sums it up. It's for the common good. The church is not where we engage in our personal hobbies. 
It is where we work together for a single common purpose. And Jesus directs that. We only know this church through the life of Jesus. And lastly, we only understand the risen Christ. Only in the risen Christ can we fully understand God's peace. Verse 20 says in Colossians, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, for the things in heaven, things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We live in a province and in a time when there's, and you know this from the last few weeks, when there's constant struggles in the labor movements, whether it's the ferry system or the medical profession or bus drivers or whatever. And then a year or two later, they're back at the same bargaining table trying to solve it all over again. When Jesus came into the church, he did not come to arbitrate. He came to mediate. That means he was the one who stands in the middle. He takes the pressure from both sides, absorbs it in his body. He did not get up and leave the bargaining table when the parties were too far apart. He stood in the middle and filled the gap with himself. Paul says he came to reconcile, bring peace. Corinthians has a passage. Listen to the number of times he uses this word reconcile. All this is from God. who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God was making his appeal to us, we implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then what's called verse 21. You've got to memorize this one. It's critical. God made him Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a phenomenal verse. There are four areas of reconciliation that we need. One is to God. Second one is to ourselves. We don't often think that. Thirdly is to one another. Fourthly is to our world. And the cross is the only answer to the cosmic rebellion against God. Peace does not come from a negotiated settlement. It comes only as we surrender to the Lord of heaven and earth. So in this age of space exploration, Nuclear technology, stem cell research, Russia, Ukraine, all kinds of stuff. The problems of life seem to be insurmountable and insoluble. Sometimes we're tempted to throw up our hands and just admit moral, moral failure and spiritual defeat. Only a truly cosmic Christ can bring us all that we need. One who brings cosmos out of our chaos. Where do we start? Well, as always, we can begin in the microcosm of our own lives. Your life and mine, our homes. Perhaps this week your life is in some dark mess, just as the world was in chaos before God stepped into it. And this morning you need to ask him to speak a word into your life that will bring light out of the darkness, will bring cosmos out of chaos. Perhaps something in your life or your marriage is coming apart at the seams. And you need to ask Christ to come and be the glue that will hold everything together. Perhaps your inner life is full of strife. 
a war is waging inside you and you need to ask Christ to speak his word of peace and bring things in you under control. Perhaps very simply, you need to lay something down at the foot of the cross and quit fighting with somebody. Quit fighting with yourself. When a church starts to feel the storms of chaos, it needs to turn to the word of Christ and find peace in submission to his word and his truth. We believe that he does all of this and more because he and he alone is the Lord of heaven and earth. He and he alone, as Revelation says to us, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So through this Easter season, we join and sing one of the great hymns of the church in praise to Jesus. I call it for you, a hymn to the risen Christ. Would you stand? We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.